from Loyola University Chicago School of Law and WLUW. This is the Pavacit. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to the Pavacit wherever you get your podcasts and join us every Saturday evening at 6 on WLUW 88.7 Chicago. For more information about this episode and our guest, please visit our website at thepavacit.com and check out our social media pages. Hi, listeners. Thanks for tuning in to part two of The Path to the Dean Suite. On today's episode, we will be interviewing Dean Alexandri, Dean of Loyola Chicago School of Law, Dean Luma, Assistant Dean for the Office of Inclusion, Diversity, and Equity, and Dean Giselle Santiabanez-Banya, Assistant Dean of Student Services. One last note, we do still have our school in downtown Chicago, so occasionally you will hear police firefighters, and ambulances go by during the interviews, but I hope you still enjoy them as much as I did. Thanks. Thanks for agreeing to do this. And so, Will, and you did an interview uh, with Ashe mm-hmm. uh, over the summer. You graduated, I, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so I listened to that interview. I listened to it back in the summer, but mm-hmm. then I listened to it again in, in preparation for the, the interview. Um and so I just wanted to not start off where you left because you had an expansive conversation. I really liked the conversation and the piece. And it was early in the conversation, but sort of went throughout the entire thing. But your your root um, or your rooting and your foundation and this idea of service. Mm-hmm. Um, so as now that you've started this role, and of course this isn't your first um, time being a dean, but being in a school that is is very mission driven mm-hmm. and aligned in a tradition of, of service, do you feel like your job is a bit different than it was at, at other institutions? That's an excellent question because I've been thinking about it a lot. Yeah. And my first question when I was coming is, how could I be of service, right? That's That was a, the back of my mind. I could see mm-hmm. the reason I took the job was that it aligned with so much I believe in. Mm-hmm. And and I knew there was going to be a process where I had to um, diagnose and establish where the meeting of my skills and, and, and the mission and the people met. Mm-hmm. And so to answer your question, it is both um, you know a wonderful marriage but also there are a lot of common themes in the work that I've done before. Yeah. Um, and so the mission sharpens the conversation. Mm-hmm. So what I would say is some of those common themes um, of that work is that you cannot do anything in our present day existence mm-hmm. alone. Yeah. And people have to come together and have consensus. Yeah. And our deep history of service, our deep history of, of mission um, that actually helps it. Um, and the commonality with every other bodies and, and, excel- and, and that produce excellence, but that produces the bodies that produce really um, um, thriving and close-knit communities that can continue to grow. Mm. Those commonalities involve um, community building mm. and re-emerging. Yeah. So what, what, what I think um, is an opportunity for me here is that what, how can I be of service? Um, that service really manifests itself in um, 
you know, um, seeing you as a community, as a newcomer, and seeing us now together mm -hmm. with these eyes. Yeah. Where I see who we are, yeah. but maybe we have forgotten. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Because we've been away three years mm -hmm. and because the world has gotten harder for people to, to talk to each other. Right. It's, it's, you know, and there's a lot of trauma that happened during the pandemic. There's a lot of healing that needs to be done. Mm -hmm. So that's been good. Um, and then there's like just the wonderful work of, of being a, um, a law school that that um, is always reaching for its next stage, right. and that involves a lot of consensus building, a lot of collaboration across constituencies, right. um, and that also involves consensus and community building. You can't do anything without each other, right? So it's interconnected. So the the service then has been refined, right? I think. Okay, excellent, excellent, and so. Uh, one of the things we I've been looking at or exploring and talking to the other deans about is just generally, and so one of the things, one of the quotes you have on the website is talking about how flexible law degrees are. Ah. And so that's one of the things we're looking at sort of as we talk to the various deans is the fact that the path to sort of the dean suite is just so different. Uh, and I know you started your, your legal career as a civil rights attorney. Um, so what made you actually started as a corporate attorney? Oh, did you as a corporate yeah. attorney? Okay. And then a law clerk before that. Gotcha. And so how long were you in corporate before you jumped into civil so, rights? So, uh, you know, I did the you know, clerkship as a year and then I mm -hmm. went to, and I had been in the corporate, um, uh, uh the corporate practice as summer associate, as mm -hmm. many students will relate to. So I had a guy in that experience from year one. Yeah. Um, I was one of the lucky few then. Yeah. I think there are more people who are hired in their first year. But at the time, it was unheard of for big firms to hire first years. Right. Um, so I was, I was lucky to get rec recruited by Deckard, and I had that experience throughout. And then I continued to do it um, to three years. And so I, and then I went in after clerking. Yeah. Um, and I did that um, and, and then joined two years later mm -hmm. um, the civil rights law firm. So. I, I feel like um, it all tells the story yeah. of kind of like the different forms of training. Right. That's right. Uh, the corporate world gave me kind of this immersion into how the world works. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's fair. And, and, you know, corporate practice, which I chose because I started just increasingly having this interest in business law to courses at the business school, at, you know, mm -hmm. joint courses um, with the law school. Um and mergers, all that stuff, just like, it, it, it felt like a gap in social justice. Mm -hmm. And then um, and then the corporate division, the real estate division more specifically, because I felt that property ownership was vital to my reality in right. Brooklyn, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> like in the fact that my mom was still trying to buy a house, that was her dream as an immigrant. Right. Um, and then I wanted to just look at the way corporation empowered themselves and therefore how we as people could learn from that. Yeah. Um, and then, um, so that was one form of training, right? The big scale. Mm -hmm. And then the other form of training is how you litigate a case from A to Z, how you serve clients, right. how do you further the law when there's no hope. Right. Or seemingly no hope. And right. that's civil rights training. Yeah. And that together just, I think, helped make me who I am. Yeah. No, that is fair. So what then made you make the jump from sort of the corporate law firm and then a civil rights attorney to academia 
and now into you know in the administration because i always wanted to do that really okay. yeah I, I went to law school knowing i mean i i likely wanted to join academia one yeah. day i didn't really have a uh um the words for it okay net per se right, right. It, it wasn't a I wasn't the ch I was a I'm a child of a teacher, but I'm not a child of a um, university professor or anything like that. So right. I didn't have that framework. Yeah. But I, I had been mentored into teaching yeah. in college. Okay. Um, and they were excellent mentors, and you know when mentors mentor you, one thing we don't tell students is that they see your future before you can see them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they expect that you know you'll give back. Right. Um, and I, I, I definitely felt that obligation from my mentors. One of them passed away, and I think of him often. Yeah. Um, and, and that obligation to give back, to continue to teach. So right. I, I definitely felt the bug. It was inebriating to be yeah. in class as a 19-year-old under the tutelage yeah. of my mentor and, and teaching his class for for, for a week. It yeah. was like crazy wild. And also like, oh, I want to do this for the rest of my life. Right. But I had no path. I didn't know how to do it. But the law degree, to your point, I mm -hmm. knew was flexible. And I only knew this because my upper class people kept saying it. My, you know, they would, they would, and then I, then it compelled me to learn more about the law degree. Right. Um, and so I didn't really actually crystallize my plan um, not knowing whether it would work out, but that one day I would then um, want to start working and then maybe jump to academia until mm -hmm. I saw Martha Mendel, who was my civil rights professor okay. in the first year in law school. Yeah. And she gave a speech to the class. It may have been during orientation or one of those orientation type mm -hmm. activities the first year. And she just basically told us all the things we could do with a law degree. Yeah. And I looked at her and I said, I also want to do what you want to, what you're doing now. Right, right. And I loved her as a teacher. I thought she was very effective and just had the right amount of theory and practice and all that. Mm -hmm. um, and that was still fuzzy, but I like I latch on her as a mentor. Yeah. And then understood that you have to be a scholar to be, you know, all those things. So right. slowly, you know, I had friends yeah. that we like kind of would commiserate to figure out what we needed to do. Right. Okay. And so then how long were you a professor before you made your first foray into the world of administration? Time. We enjoyed teaching a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. Yeah. So I liked it, you know, I mean, it's, it's neither, you know, they have yeah. come different paths. Well, I like, I do like to mention that, that, you know, my path was that like teaching path. Yeah. I like that. Right. You also heard me say that I'm a dean and a law professor. <laughs> You're right. Because we are, you know, it took, it takes a lot of hours to become a, an educator. Right. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's a lot of collaboration way. with our students. Yeah. To really understand what teaching, effective teaching means. And also to be also, to always be open to learning because yeah. students change. Um, and we have to be constant scholars and teach and, and students of learning. Right. Um, but I, too, I started, you know, 20 years ago and I became an administrator 17, 16. So it took me a while. Yeah. And I was like administ doing administrative things. Yeah. But the formal title where you would recognize as associate dean didn't come until then. Yeah. So that means I was... Um, taking leadership as a faculty member um for like 14 years and then you know right. what i mean yeah 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 so do um 
in your role as dean, do you miss the teaching aspect, or do I miss you find it, every it day. in other but ways? But I turn. I think everything is a classroom. Yeah. And you know, you if you you know, we started with service. If you are a servant, that means your job is to also teach. Yeah. Um, and so bringing people together, building consensus requires that you figure out how to, um, you know, provide information, bring information to the table, mm -hmm. and help people see, right, ask the right questions to help people see. And then when I have the joy of seeing y'all in one room, yeah. you know, our students, then that becomes kind of, you know, it becomes an opportunity that's also more elevated as well. Right. Um, but I'm also teaching next semester. Which oh, that, nice. Yeah, excellent. <laughs> that, that that fix is gonna Right, right. <laughs> you know, it's hard for me to go a whole year without teaching. <laughs> I can I've only imagine. I've never done that. Really? Though, 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 though it might be recommended. <laughs> <laughs> but I've never done that. One, you know, for many years in, in my life, I was teaching like three, four classes a semester. Mm -hmm. And so, because I was teaching in other departments, so yeah. I got really used to that high level of student contact. Gotcha. That's fair. So, I, my main question is like, how are you going to find the time? I, I am always, it seems like you're always in a meeting, zooming off somewhere. You're like, I got five minutes and then you, you got to be somewhere else. Well, it is like, it's a yeah. conscious, this is kind of like it'll be the teaching time. That's why it's hard to make it like the full load. And yeah. most teams don't teach don't teach as the faculty other faculty members do yeah um but yeah for that time period of time um we clear you know you clear the schedule for that week so yeah. there's no travel that's fair um and then it's all about the courses you the yeah you just professor alexandria for that week, oh that's you know? fair so what uh what are you teaching next semester it's gonna be political civil rights okay. and it's um I, I teach that course as part of my textbook okay. uh, you know using my textbook uh -huh, yeah um uh and um and yeah, it's a survey course about yeah. the the roots of civil rights law, right? The the um, mammoth civil rights statute, um, and, and the things that give that it gave birth to, right? Voting Rights Act, the new forms of um, um, protections okay. across um, both across identity, but also across um, status in America. Gotcha. Um, and I imagine because we're at a time where a lot of civil rights are sort of up in the air and in question. Um, so what will you sort of explore how the... It, this... it, it gets explored regardless because um, the course, because uh, it's such a vibrant and changing landscape, yeah. I always build um, time for students to bring in their interests. Yeah. And so we have class presentations. Okay. Um, and because, uh, so this course is a survey and the course is really not long enough to cover everything. Right, everything. So the presentations are a way for the students to go with the baseline that we create and mm -hmm. look up an issue and then I help them with, um, you know, I usually use TAs in the course as partners as well to help them find a legal framework, research it, use mm -hmm. a library, yeah. and then present it to the class where we have a, a conversation about the legal, the legal doctrine and the, it's a, the implication mm -hmm. and, and some of the um, possibility for change or, right. or its future. Right, okay. Yeah. And then, so given your extensive background in both in practice and in academia, and coming in, of course, you, um, I think we knew toward the end of last semester you were coming in and you came in in the summer. So based on what you thought the role was going to be, and now that you're in it, what is what are the differences that uh, that you see? 
It actually is pretty much what I expected. Okay. I thought this was, uh, my assessment was that this is a stellar, a wonderful community, um, and that um, we'd, we would be able to do great work together. Mm -hmm. um, I also thought that we were in need of rebuilding community back. Right. I think those two things are still very true. Right. You know what I mean? We are place, I think, and I, I, I would be curious to know what the students think, because I get to talk to the staff and faculty about it yeah. a lot, but I, we replaced that, that really value relationships right. and the ability to get work done and, and move through the day by connecting with each other. Right. So that took a lot from us yeah. when we were not doing that for three years. And right. I think, and I think we're we healthier now than we were last year. And we'll, we'll continue to be healthy in terms of building back community. Yeah. Um, but that's definitely a level of work I knew that we would have to do together yeah. in addition to everything else. You may know, and this is a good time for, for if you don't know, for our students to know that um, one of a piece of work we're doing in addition to, you know, our job um, of progressing, we um, focus on progressing the law school, is um, getting ready for our ABA site visit. Right. Right. So um, that's like kind of, if you take that as an example, a coherent, collaborative piece of work. Right. Because a site visit is really a, a wholesale assessment mm -hmm. um, of uh, what we've done. And, uh, and and a, a, a clear articulation of what we hope to do. Yeah. And in order to do that, it takes everybody, including yeah. students. Right. Wow. Yeah. Okay. That's awesome. And uh, But is there a specific role students play in that? Yeah. When it gets closer, we will be engaging students. Students will meet with the ABA okay. uh, site visitors. I'm going on a site visit in two weeks to another school right. to do that. So um, then I'll be engaged with students. Actually, part of my task yeah. as part of that team is to and is to focus on students so there are big chunks as you know right um where we focus on deliverable including how we assess how we uh, manage outcomes for our students yeah so there's it's very student focused and then the aba will and the the, the, the team will want to kind of engage with y'all yeah one -on -one. Uh, interesting and do and this is a question i, I just thought of in terms of sort of the ABA evaluation versus just like your own evaluation of even our own institution, because we were talking about how community has um, has been affected by the pandemic. Do you feel like there's been sort of a, a drop in say like trust in like inherent trust from students towards the institution because of um, the pandemic? And That's an excellent question. So. Um, I'm not sure if I would say lack of trust, but you mentioned something early that I think is definitely true. Yeah. Students don't know as much, right? We can't assume that because we've like posted things on on social media right. or that we've like for 20 years said associate dean for academic affairs right. that everyone understands what that is. Right. Only because they didn't have the visual. Right interaction as much yeah right they didn't they weren't coming to 12th floor right. for a good chunk of their legal career right i mean their legal law school career so that has been lost yeah. and i think at the beginning you were mentioning reintroducing the students to the team right. and kind of like um, helping them understand what everyone does and we saw that and that's why we did the first 
uh, town hall. We yeah. kind of heard that loud and clear right. as well. And there's another town hall coming up, I think, there in two is. days. In two days, yeah. yeah. There is another town hall, and that one will be focused on, um, you know, more of kind of like that team um, um, collaboration in case students have questions. But the, the, the square focus uh, will be on, um, you know, wellness um, outlets and resources for students. Um, resources regarding exam preparation mm-hmm. um, and any questions related to that. Gotcha. No, that's excellent. And that's the one thing, the stark, one of the biggest differences I've noticed between last year and this year. Of course, we have a lot fewer restrictions by way of COVID, uh, but having the Dean Town Halls, and these are going to be regular mm-hmm. occurrences, mm-hmm. Um, and just having that FaceTime with the administration, I think, is, is important. Um, we definitely want to do that. We want to have it. And, and you know, um, I don't know if the students know, but um, uh, having kind of you, all of you, bring ideas to us, that's extremely valuable. So mm-hmm. we get our ideas um, by asking the SBA, for example, right. hey, what, what, what would be helpful at this point? And then they, in turn, go back and kind of yeah. ask students, et cetera. It's a very deliberative process. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm, I really commend our student leaders for being that thorough and thoughtful about it. Um, and I wish I could promise you that we could wake up. I know we, you know, our priority is always to be close to you. Right. Figure out how to do that. <laughs> right. That's more difficult from day to day, meaning that you don't want us to keep haunting you. <laughs> right. Or just even bringing donuts all the time, right. even though donuts are good, and right? And delicious, yeah. Uh, and delicious. <laughs> um, so there's a, there's a space for it, but... Yeah. If you really need to have information about wellness and we're not thinking about it, the right. suggestion is so helpful. Right. No, yeah. that certainly makes sense. So I guess the final question that I will ask, or there's two and that I've been asking everyone. Uh, so the first one is sort of very related to the job. What is sort of your hope as in your tenure as the dean to transform or to add to Loyola Law? Um, so I think I have a, a hope that um, everyone shares, right, um, and you as students and future and future um, alumni, which is to continue to amplify the national reputation. And that is in your collaboration with all of you, mm-hmm. um, and it's in close collaboration with um, the faculty and staff as well, right? Mm-hmm. They all play a role. Right. So wherever we need to... Um, uh, strengthen and that is that is to say we do an excellent how right. can we be more excellent right right so um, about passage rate um, scores were wonderful and they show how strong we are right and we'll continue to ask ourselves how do we improve those yeah. to be in conversation with the top three schools right because that's that's what we deserve okay that <laughs> you yeah, all right that's we, what deserve. we deserve yes and I that, love it and we and we that means also and you've you've heard us talk about it and we have our new head of our um, bar, bar support program yeah. and academic success and all of that. Um, you heard about how we understand that we do not take for granted our job to continue to learn how to help you, mm-hmm. how to support students at all levels academically yeah. and how we've built our office to really continue to ask ourselves, what do we need to do? How right. do we how do we get um, before there's a problem? How do we right. get in front of it? How do we... Um, um, encourage students to come to us and have the collaboration with faculty. So all of that. So and you know I I, I thought I, I I 
talk about outcomes because that's obvious, right? right? And that's actually we are measured on that. So, right, yeah, so right. we shouldn't be, uh, sh we shouldn't shy away from it. It doesn't right. mean it's a magic bullet. Right. We already excellent. So this is all kind of like our new phase, right? right? Our next phase. Um, so there's that. There's also national reputation kind of taking that space. Right, right. And like, you know, to the extent that we need to sharpen our marketing, you know, so mm -hmm. we all studying that. How do we make sure that we telling our story? Right. The best way possible. Yeah. But not just assuming people know it. Right. Because we have a great thing here. Yeah. Um, and um, it'd be important for us to always ask ourselves, especially after the pandemic, are we telling the story in a way that are we bragging enough about right, ourselves? Right. Right. I know we humble, but are we bragging? <laughs> are we bragging enough about ourselves? So yeah. that's that's definitely. I think when I talk to folks about it, I think that people share that, and mm -hmm. they they would welcome kind of the the conversation about how we could do that. Right. And the other thing is a kind of it's a dean thing. Yeah. It's why you hire a dean. Yeah. Um, <laughs> is is collaborating with everyone in our new advancement op advancement office yeah. to um, forge a path to bring more resources to the law school. That is fair. So you know, making the you know, relying on you, collaborating with you to make the law school even stronger, thrive in its next stage even more, right. with, and bring more resources to it. And those are all you know b things that require building blocks. Yeah and long-term efforts in order for them to yield results. Excellent. Uh, and the final question is, um, and it's like, I recognize it's like uh, one of those um, icebreaker questions. Like, oh, really? But like the fun <laughs> fact question, but like what is the, what's that one thing that people should know about you, both as the dean, but just as a person? What is something that somebody that should, people should know funny. about you? So I know it's a icebreaker question, and I wonder what don't people know about me. So I don't know. So I know folks can tell that I'm a little relaxed sometimes, yeah. right? Yeah. Then I get serious, so it's hard to tell. <laughs> um, uh, and you, but what you might not know about me, and they kind of go hand in hand. Um, one you won't see as often, but one thing to know about me is that I love to laugh. Yeah. Okay. Um, I really do. Yeah. Um, so that means that when things get, even when things get stressful, yeah. I'm gonna be dissecting the situation. Yeah. And um, so to see, you know, what is a life lesson here? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And that life, I find, has a way of teaching you lesson yeah. in a way that requires you not to take yourself or the circumstances seriously. Right. So, so folks might not. Uh, know that about me, but when I cock my head back yeah. and like I you have really a big it. out loud laugh, yeah. then you'll know why because <laughs> that's, I love to laugh. Yeah. And there's nothing too, um, you know, things are, you know, we can't afford to take our lives seriously. Right. Life is short yeah. and people, you know, we and we don't know what we're giving. So mm -hmm. um, we lose people all the time and are always surprised because we, we, we we always surprised and jarred by how fleeting life is, so we right. need to enjoy every moment. Yeah. The other thing is kind of I love to dance. And really. I don't get to dance as much as a dean, but yeah, I love to dance. Really, any particular style, or you just, if there's music playing, you want to dance? I love all of them, but I'm a child who grew up. I'm a '70s child yeah. who grew up in the heyday of hip hop. Okay. That's definitely love. Yeah. So. Um, so you know, so that you know, I think music heals and music mm -hmm. of all forms, and I, you know, I come from multiple traditions. So, right. So that that really um, that really helps root me. Yeah. But you know, because I love to dance, I listen to music a lot, right. and I'm always checking out what's out there. I'm trying to hang with y'all, young people. <laughs> 
Um, but I'm, uh, you know, I'm in, and I learn a lot because yeah. there's so much difference in hip hop now. Young people really challenging mm-hmm. the heteronormative, and I mean, it's like it, it's it's wonderful to watch. Yeah, you know, Kendrick having an illumination about you know his auntie and, yeah. and his cousin. So those yeah. conversations to me remind us that. Um, Everything is an engagement, and art and music is a way of showing that. Right. Yeah. Um, even better than what that than what we could kind of like lecture right. about. So for sure. I just love music, and mm-hmm. I love to dance to it and pay homage to the beauty of yeah. life. Yeah, that is excellent. Well, I appreciate your time. I know it's valuable. Uh, and we're actually a little over time, so oh. I actually I actually appreciate uh, you doing this. Uh, I, I appreciate you asking me. Thank you so much. Yeah. That's very kind. Thank you. So thanks for coming, agreeing to be interviewed with us. Uh, so one of the first things is just like, so what's your title and, and what do you do? Sure. So I am Dean, Assistant Dean Tani Luma, and I'm the Assistant Dean for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion here at the Loyola School of Law. And I am happy to talk more about the office. Yeah. Am I wrong? Okay, sure. So... When it comes to principles of DEI, every community, culture, and context has different needs. And I'm still gathering and observing and listening to people about, you know, the most pertinent needs here. But there's things that stick out um, across law schools and things that I think are really valuable priorities for our community, um, just to start out with. So one of the priorities I'll be focusing on is academic support just making sure that if we invite diverse students here we're making sure that they're as successful as possible with their law school journey and that they can graduate um successfully pass a bar successfully and get the jobs that they want in the legal market so i'll be focusing on that um other aspects of student support whether that be assisting uh, dean giselle in her role or the dean's office or um just looking at sense of belonging community and culture and student support. Um, I think looking at um, definitely our classrooms, inclusive classrooms and our um, encouraging our faculty and working with Dean Coupe, faculty uh, having inclusive and anti-racist syllabi and uh, making sure that we are discussing law through not just one lens, but many lenses, which can be through um, historical lenses, anti-racism lenses, can be through structural inequalities, can through power and oppression dynamics, social justice dynamics. And so there's, I think, just so many choices for scholarship and teaching here. And thankfully, so many of our faculty um, are ready interested in doing that and are doing that. We just wanna um, communicate and message the the need and the value of just more and more of our classrooms our courses and our faculty adapting that type of approach so those are some of the priorities that i'm uh, pretty certain um will be valuable to prioritize here and i'm always happy to look at others as well excellent and so you're one of the or probably the newest dean out of everyone that i am interviewing Certainly the newest to the school, because I think Professor or Dean Russian uh, has just recently stepped into his role as well. 
Um, so prior to this, you were at UIC. Yes. Doing the same thing. And yes. I'm just kind of curious. You talked a bit about how the context changes within the community mm. about what the needs are. Yeah. Um, so sort of between the two schools, mm. um, what 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 are sort of the either blaring uh, glaring similarities and or sort of a, a distinct difference between the two? Sure. So you've invited me to compare children <laughs> as a parent would compare their oldest to the youngest yeah. or the first to the third. Yeah. Thank you very much. But I will I will um, I will answer this question to do justice to both my wonderful institutions that I've been at. But, you know, um, the need for academic support um, is always there, but I think depending on the journey that students have taken before they get to law school really uh, influences the, the level of, of, of need or academic support or student success support that you may need. And I see that need as different between the two institutions. Um, and I'm, I, don't, I don't understand or... I haven't been able to put my my finger on the difference, but there is a different need. Now, I will not say that the need is greater here mm. or greater there, yeah. but the need is different. Yeah. And and I and I think that um, more students here are looking for a different type of collaboration and partnership mm. um, in in their in their law school. And I think that I think part of the difference might be is that. The context for how students do law school here is within a Jesuit Society of Jesus context that yeah. wasn't at UIC. Yeah. So I think that already has a different foundation for community yeah. and needs. Mm-hmm. And um, this community has, this law school community has been um, through a pandemic like a lot of law schools and also coming back into the building for a lot of students. And so I think that also impacts need. And I think that need is also similar between um, this institution and my last one and really institutions across the board, but how that need translates or what students are looking for to kind of get back to what is normal or create a new normal. Mm -hmm. I think we're all figuring out collectively as well. We had a robust town hall. Yeah, <laughs> that, we did. that was well attended, very vocal. And I think we're hearing some of the needs and the expectations that the students have of us. And, um, you know, we, we also have to communicate the expectations and the needs that we're addressing as well. Right. So, yeah, that is that is totally fair. <laughs> um, and I'm sure most parents will you know, say they don't have a favorite, but I know I'm my mother's favorite. Um, <laughs> I know that's right. I know that's right. So stepping back a little bit, um, and starting at the beginning, what um, what prompted you to come to law school or like go to law school to begin with? Sure. So I did broadcast journalism. Mm-hmm. Um, I was on the other side of this microphone, yeah. you know, in my college days, and I also did sociology because I really wanted to study society and structural inequality and groups. Um, and how groups move differently within our society based on access, um, power, um, et cetera. 
And so I uh, didn't think about law school until I graduated. And I was thinking about what broadcast journalism would really look like and how in broadcast journalism, you audition from lower markets into higher markets. I'm like, I don't want to audition my way through my career. Like headshots, sending in, you know, videos and demos of me speaking, presenting. I'm like, that's too close to being an actor and, you know, auditioning for roles. And I was never drawn to that. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to audition. I want my work to speak for itself. So, oh. so I, um, I then thought about what graduate programs would suit me and using my voice in journalism and using my voice for advocacy on behalf of others as an attorney just kind of went hand in hand and fit. And so I knew nothing, and I always say this to students, whoever I'm talking to, I knew nothing about law school. And I figured out law school as I went from day to day. If they told me at the end of the semester, you'll have to do this to continue on in your spring semester, that would have been the first time I was hearing about whatever I needed to do. Um, I remember the first time I heard about the NPRE. I knew I had to take a bar, but hearing more about what that looked like, I mean, I learned it all as I went. And so um, it it was a really... Uh, jump in the deep end, figure it out type of experience for sure. Gotcha. So is that what led you then? Well, so for those who don't know, mm-hmm. who are listening to the podcast, your background is quite varied because I saw that after you graduated from undergrad, you then went to Ghana to establish a radio station. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so can you talk about yeah, that? For yeah, a second? Yeah. Okay. So I had not yet transitioned from broadcast journalism to law, I yeah. was on that journey. If I went in 2009, I believe, no, no, I'm sorry. If I went in 2005, I didn't go into law school until 2006. So there was still a gap. So I was an intern for the North American division of Seven Day Adventist. That's that's my faith. Um, Adventist, Adventism is part of the Christian faith for, the, for those that don't know. And so they, were doing work at a university in Ghana where they wanted to establish a radio, a shortwave broadcast radio station for students on the campus to use it for their own purposes, but also in order for it to be used um, for faith and Christian purposes. And so um, because I had just graduated with that um, background and degree, they sent me over to help establish that shortwave radio broadcast station on the campus. And it was an amazing experience. You know, I met other students in Africa and Ghana um, living a similar life to me that I had lived in in college. And um, the hospitality, the culture, the place, all of it was amazing. And I worked with vendors in South Africa to get equipment to Ghana and help install it, you know, it was really great. And so, uh, yeah, that was part of my broadcast journalism experience before I transitioned over to law school too. Okay, that, so, cause we'll get to all the other things you helped found and establish and everything <laughs> else shortly, but were you always sort of the type that really wanted to, I don't know, help create things or would that, that experience sort of spur that idea of creating what's not there if it's not there? Yes, um, you prepared yourself for this for this interview. Um, I do like I do like creation, and I do like 
breathing ideas into spaces. Mm. I do. Yeah. Okay. Do. Fair enough. Because, you know, we're at you sort of coming to law school, and one of the things you, you helped found was sort of, now if I might get the name wrong, it's the Diversity Committee or um, was the name, but then you fought for the Office of Diversity to be established at the law school. Yes. Uh, which you then later ran, yes, <laughs> which I'm yes. sure is a full circle moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so talk about sort of your experience as a law student and what led you to sort of advocate for the creation of the committee and then the office. Sure. So I'll try to to connect some strands, yeah. right? So I went to Ghana. I worked in New York oh. as a paralegal. Okay. And during that time, I prepared to take the LSAT. I took the LSAT, and now I've gotten into two law schools, a law school in Chicago and a law school in New York. And I decide, because I'm already living in New York, and I see the high cost of living right. and just how hard it is to live, you know, a life outside of financial, like, debt and burden in New York. I say Chicago is expensive, but it's l- less expensive than New York. So I go to Chicago, and I know nobody again. Yeah. And, like, yeah. this is starting, like... No family, no friends, starting from scratch. And I don't know law school. So that, that first year was a few things. It was it was scary, but it was also exciting. And I saw it as like, you know, my new chapter of my life. So so it was engaging. So anyway, now, now we're at the end of my law school career. Because first I had to figure out law school. I didn't know what I was doing. Second semester, second semester and second year were great. I learned what I was doing. I was a, you know stellar student from there on and then now it's like I'm looking around my community and I'm trying to realize gaps and I'm like there's a lot of black and brown students here and a lot of us are in leadership we're in the SBA we're doing things but there's nothing no office organized around our experience or looking at equity or looking at making sure policies are inclusive and so I was the chair of the diversity affairs committee of the SBA So I wasn't, I was kind of a a subcommittee of of the SBA. So I guess I was part of the SBA by proxy. So as chair of the Diversity Affairs Committee, we looked into the value of the diversity office, what a vision or statement could look like, what um, value we give to the institution and the students. And I presented this to our dean, Dean Corkery at the time. And I would meet with the dean on a regular basis, like weekly, and we would just talk about what a plan would look like and what it what it would what what that office would, would look like and what why it was needed. Yeah. And by the time I graduated, there was the first assistant dean of diversity, and the office was instituted upon my graduation. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> that that's that is very cool. Yeah. Um, so, and we'll we'll get back to you sort of leading the office in a minute, sure. but then you left and went and practiced uh, for a while. I went ahead and I used my license, my my law license, to practice civil litigation in the abuse and neglect division of Cook County Court. So, I did that for seven years, and while I was doing that give you a little segue if you're ready for it you know yeah. what I say while while I was practicing about three years into practicing law I started being an adjunct at DePaul yeah that okay I saw that um, and before we jump to DePaul yeah, we're okay, going to sure. talk about something else you created which was the jobs for youth program oh yes okay 
So the jobs for youth. Yeah, that's something I don't get to talk about often. So, okay. So representing abused and neglect children also means that you represent a lot of foster children, children that aren't returned home to their families for whatever reason. And so, um, you know, imagine being on your own. The state is taking care of you, but, you know, something that I always say from my experience, the state is not a great parent. The state is just a, a string of offices and then a social worker that changes from time to time. That's kind of a part of your life in and out. And most of it is you just surviving on your own. So amongst all of that, um, all, amongst everything going on in your life, being unstable or, you know, you trying to find, you know, a permanent home or maybe having a permanent home, but kind of still dealing with the trauma of not being with your um, with your family, um, you know, you have to find a job and you have to, uh, you have to provide for yourself. And then the system is not going to continue to be a part of your life after 21. Yeah. So jobs for youth was really came out of one client who was just so amazing at one of the jobs that he had. He ended up working with Stephanie Izzard of girl and the goat in the West loop. And he was just a, such an amazing, like, line prep cook, then sous chef. And he was just moving on. It's like, how can we get other um, young adults, youth, to have a similar experience where they're given right. a great opportunity and they just really flourish? So right. we started to look at other youth that could join maybe in uh, getting food safety certificates and working with Stephanie Izzard or whether they could do other opportunities with other, you know, businesses or corporations. And so um, by the time I left, um, we had started Jobs for Youth. And um, I, I really hope that, you know, they were able to continue it and include other youth that really, you know, were interested in um, finding like secure um, employment that could give them some opportunities for growth. Because now I think the, the youth that started the program is really um, has been really like promoted mm-hmm. within the food service hospitality business. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, then you were, t- so you were teaching at DePaul. Yes. Um, and what got you interested in even wanting to teach in- initially? So my interest in teaching was just something that I had carried with me since, I can remember. I was just always interested in learning. I was always interested in reading. And then so the flip side of that was always communicating knowledge Mm -hmm. to others and just having that knowledge impact people in a valuable way. So I was always interested in teaching. Yeah, that is fair. And did and how long were you at DePaul? How long was your crossover between the the Cook County and DePaul? So I want to say the length of time I I was there. So I left Cook County in 2016 mm-hmm. and I was an adjunct at DePaul from that from 2012 until about oh. 2017 yeah. yeah so for about five years so I would teach I mean I'm sorry I would litigate in the courtroom um then I would leave and go to the classroom gotcha and I saw you taught something like critical thinking critical thinking yes criminal justice and then homeland security that seemed <laughs> yeah, yeah. that sort of came, that was out of your entire background that seemed <laughs> yeah. to stand so out so not that I worked in homeland security but to the extent that it was a function of the government and attached to laws and statutes that's uh, how homeland security came about okay. it was it was more of an opportunity than something i had vast experience <laughs> with but it kind of it's kind of like one of those things like you know you have to learn an area of law right. because your client comes to you with something yeah. it was kind of like that 
Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and is there anything that you sort of learned as you were teaching the Homeland Security, or really any of criminal justice or critical thinking that you sort of carried so with you? So this isn't as well documented, but when I when I was an adjunct for DePaul, one of the things that I did is I taught um, Chicago Police Department officers okay. critical thinking. Okay. So a lot of my students were police officers. That was interesting. Yeah. That was interesting. I, I taught them critical thinking, and I think there was some criminal justice aspects to it too but i really was in i guess not embedded but exposed or saw or observed mm-hmm. witnessed a lot of the um police culture yeah a lot of police culture i'm not saying it's bad right i'm just saying i just saw a lot of them in a room together and how they interacted from sergeants to police um you know to, to those like without a higher rank, uh-huh. those those were that were beat cops. And I felt like I had to also kind of, and you kind of have to do this for many reasons, um, especially if you're not like, you know, a traditional white male faculty person. You, yeah. Sometimes you have to prove your credibility. Right. But I felt like I definitely had to show that I knew what I was doing before they fully respected my my. A role, yeah, as as their professor or teacher, yeah. And so, as a uh, black woman coming up in just a, the legal profession, yeah, is that is that something you've had to do? Well, I mean, I almost can answer the question, even though I'm not a black woman. <laughs> but you know, is this something that you've had to do throughout your career? Is really sort of step into a room and prove yourself before anyone would? Yeah. Listen? So I'm not the most likely person to have authority in a room just in people's experience and honestly sometimes not so much maybe imposter syndrome but just coming into the room and just feeling the mountain that I have to climb in order to like get past my identity right to the actual work that we're doing here right right you know and so whether I have to you know just explain my resume my interest, my passion, my experience, uh, how long I've been doing something, I have to I have to establish my credibility hopefully as quickly as possible so that it's not a distraction, so that right. I'm not a distraction and now we can focus on the thing. And so in court, not so much because you know once you once the case begins, it's really the power of your of your advocacy that proves who you are it's yeah. it's when you're standing outside the courtroom it's like who's the clients and who's the attorneys right yeah or the first day of class coming in is that our professor or is that somebody else and then okay how you not only just being black or a woman looking younger yeah why do you know anything different than me aren't we like at the same place right like you know what's what's the difference of your knowledge and experience than mine where especially when i started being an adjunct um I was in my 20s. Yeah. And a lot of my students were older than me. Yeah. So, um, because I taught at, in the evening. Oh, right. So, I wasn't right. teaching during the day when I worked. So, yeah. a lot of the evening students were right. non traditional and older. And so, they were older than me. And so, when I first started, it was all humility. Just, we're here to do this together. <laughs> this is my first course. Yeah. But then, as I got more experience, I wanted my experience to matter. Right. And I wanted my experience to 
establish some trust and credibility that I could lead them through a semester. So right, okay, wow. And uh, what, is there one sort of tool that you found more effective than others, or is it just sort of dependent on the situation? I mean, you can talk about who you are, your experience, like you know, give your bio. I think that helps, you know, so people can you know at least start to place you um, instead of you just being in a void but yeah. I think what establishes most is just how you do the work yeah and how do you how you respond to them when they have a question or when they have a need right yeah, that is fair I do there's definitely a professor I have that I'd ask questions and we got a lot of I don't knows or I haven't looked it up or I have that hasn't interested me enough to look it up and I don't I, I'm like oh, I don't expect you to know everything I expect you to at the very least I don't know let me get back to you or Here's yeah. some resources to figure out the answer yourself. Something. Yes. Just, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, being prepared mattered. Yeah. It mattered. Oh, for sure. And so then in 2016, is this when you went back to UIC to lead the office you helped establish? So in 2017, no, 2018, actually. So I, there's a gap. Yeah. I'll, I'll fill in that gap. So in 2016, I left litigation. And for about two years, I worked for myself. Oh, uh, you're consulting. Right? Yeah. yeah. Consul- <laughs> I consulted and I and I did um, some legal representation, mostly, mostly contracts, nothing in the courtroom. So between working, working for myself, um, like doing my own law practice, and then also doing consulting, leadership consulting, which we can talk about. That was that two-year period. And then in 2018, I went to UIC full-time. Okay. Okay. And so stopping sort of or working for yourself, how was that? What did you learn about yourself? Yeah. So everything is relative, right? So working for myself was so novel because everything after law school had been working for abused and neglected children and I would have a hundred clients at a time oh wow so working for myself was just after seven years of doing that was getting more autonomy of my time yeah of my day seeing the outside of of the world between nine to five instead of being on it was just it was it was a new start because for seven years after law school I had you know just been on the ground in the community doing really deep, you know, social work and litigation work that had some really deep trauma around it. And so after seven years, it was, it was like, uh, taking several deep breaths, several deep breaths. Um, because I, I really cared about the outcomes of those cases and, and I did whatever I could to get an outcome that I thought was best. And yeah. so not having to work towards outcomes like that, but just do other work that just had totally different weight and consequence was right. just yeah, it was yeah. it was a new it was a new chapter. <laughs> it was it was it was a new chapter, yeah. Yeah, and is that lot. what took you to the Harvard program that you all Yes. So <laughs> it, it, it just talking about it in pieces, it's like, how does this all come together? But yeah. it's it's all within the context of, you know, what I was living at the time. Yeah. I was really interested seeing working with abused and neglected 
children and child welfare systems and social systems, I was really interested in how our organizations worked. Right. And what a healthy organization could look like coming out of all this bureaucracy. Right. I'm like, what does it mean to have a healthy organization? And what does it also mean to enjoy your work? And not that I didn't enjoy my work, there was some toxicity mm-hmm. within the office that I worked for. And it's like, what is it like to do work outside of toxic environments Mm -hmm. and have healthy environments? And so I studied leadership and organizations and I saw an opportunity uh, through the Harvard Executive Education Program to study leadership and organization. And I applied and they accepted me and I was very happy to go to learn more. And that felt, that, that was like, that was like, uh, nerd summer camp <laughs> and I loved it yeah it was I'd, I'd go again in a heartbeat yeah oh yeah it was great is there a standout um, concept that that sort of you carry with you today that you learned then or a way of viewing things well the the people that were there and the experiences that they were having in organizations and the challenges that they were facing were all complex yeah because it, this is leadership and complexity leadership where you have various stakeholders that have competing values and priorities. And so kind of hearing people doing all of this work, um, what stood out to me is the humility and the servant leadership approach that just serves you and everyone around you in a way that other leadership styles don't. When you're doing a leadership style from ego, from insecurity, from protectiveness, from fear, from motive, that can really damage you and the organization around you. So really, it really, um, I was really impressed to do it from a sense of wholeness within yourself and then honesty and a wholeness about what you wanted to give those around you. Right. Yeah. Oh, excellent. And yeah. is this the same time you were serving on the Forbes Coaches Council? <laughs> so, the, yes. So that that was after. Okay. That was after. And then I wrote my two Forbes articles okay. afterwards. So tell, yeah. tell, let's talk a little bit about that. What is the council? What did it mean to be on the council? So it's it's really like a professional organization, kind of how like you, you join a bar association. Right. So it's not like we did anything. It, it, it's yeah. more like... You have certain qualifications that yeah. qualify you to have this designation. Yeah. So if there were events around that, yeah. I didn't go, <laughs> but <laughs> or I wasn't aware. Right. But but it was more a designation that you have leadership consulting experience and you can have this designation. And then I also wrote for Forbes. So yeah. Nice. Okay. Yeah. And around leadership. Then. Yes. Okay. Excellent. Yeah. Um, do you like writing and do you like that process? So there's a difference between writing and then the writing and the scholarship and teaching that happens in a law school setting. I am not a scholar that will now write research and and articles for publication in peer-reviewed journals. Uh That's not um, my my me or my interests. But um, no, I don't I don't mind writing um, in a more uh, casual. Uh, setting, yeah, you know, about work that I'm doing. Yeah, no, that is fair. That is fair. So, 
now I think we're finally back to you, or like up to you joining UIC and then leading the office you helped found. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, again, was an adjunct at DePaul, and then I was an adjunct at UIC Law. And so I was teaching a course at UIC Law, and I met one of the associate deans, and he needed someone to join his team, and he hired me to join his team um, in academic support. And so I began my journey in academic support. He needed someone, Associate Dean Rodney Fong, who's still at UIC Law, he needed someone to develop a a 1L course for incoming students, mm-hmm. for incoming one-on-ones on legal analysis, on how to do legal analysis, um, how to issue spot, um, apply rules, make legal conclusions. And so I developed that course um, in the fall of 2018. And I was happy to do that work, but then our assistant dean for diversity left. And it made me think about my interest and ability in doing that position. So eight months into doing academic support, I applied for the assistant dean position and um, I was selected to be the next assistant dean. Gotcha. What was that moment like for you stepping into that role? It was, again, a full circle moment because I had a campaign for that office as a student and lo and behold, I'm the third now assistant dean of the office. And so it was surreal. It was surreal. And I was always interested in teaching. And then I was, you know, offered a higher ed position full time. And now I'm in higher ed administration. And I didn't plan that path. But, you know, the opportunities presented itself as I did the higher education work. And I was just, I was just really thankful. I was really thankful and humbled to, to be there, especially because it's not something I strategically geared for, but something that um, presented itself over time. And yeah. So, yeah, no, it was surreal. Yeah. Excellent. And so you talked a bit about, like, taking advantage of opportunity. Mm. So when you advise students and you talk to students as they're trying to figure out what they want to do with life, how do you talk to them around the idea of opportunities? So, and- yeah, I have to speak from my experience. Yeah. So in my experience, I've been honest and committed to whatever work I was doing. And and that genuine approach to work has always produced um, valuable work wherever I was. So I always encourage students to be honest about the work that they wanna do, do it full heartedly. And and that the value of the work that they're producing will present itself opportunities because people are always like, doesn't matter what the market is like, the market might be hard to get into or it might be wide open. Mm. One thing that's consistent is people will always look for people that are doing valuable work that's right. needed. Right. And that's never going to go out of style. And so that will always present opportunities to you. Gotcha. Yeah. No, that is excellent. So you were at USC for three years and then you are now. I'm now here. So part of my USC role was in the COVID vortex where time feels differently right right so it seemed like you know the years just went by so fast doing that work and the transition from uic to here um came about in a few ways first i was a student there yeah then i taught there 
as an adjunct. Then I was full-time there, and then I was a dean there. And I really thought that it was important for me to see law school, see DEI work in higher ed outside of just one context, just one lens, and not just be so, um, uh, you know, just entrenched in one system and, and community. And so that was important for me. Um, and I think that, yeah, I, I was interested. I had seen some of the same challenges there um, as a student, then as staff, and then as um, an administration. And I was interested to see um, some challenges, you know, are, are consistent across the year. I was interested to see how I could um, approach other challenges in other contexts. Right. So, yeah. That is fair. And so one of the things, and you actually touched on it a bit earlier, but, you know, obviously Loyola is a Jesuit institution Mm. um, Mm -hmm. and, you know, sort of rooted in in that um, tradition of of service. Yeah. Did that play any in your decision at all in in coming to Loyola? Because you did talk about you have a a background in faith of Seventh-day Adventist. So, you know, faith is really um, a core part of my identity and the opportunity to work in a faith-based institution was just like, whoa, yeah. that's cool. Um, to be able to hold your faith, not as just something personal, but something as institutional, mm-hmm. that, was, that, was, that was a really cool opportunity. And, you know, knowing that Loyola is a faith-based institution is, you know, a logical mental thing but then experiencing it because yeah. i didn't want to assume what that experience would look like because right. every faith-based institution is not the same right. doesn't carry that no. faith doesn't carry that that uh, priority those values the same so i was really interested in how it would be experienced here and no it's it's been good yeah it's been good i appreciate it yeah okay excellent i'm i'm always interested in people's experiences with the the faith aspect of the institution Mm. yeah yeah um whether coming from a background of faith or not just because everyone i'm sure experiences it differently Mm, Uh, and certainly from a staff perspective because you're you're like here more than we as students are because we're like we're here a lot physically but like we're just sort of focused on the law more than (laughs) just like being around and and the programs and Mm, you know yeah. the background of everything that the staff that as, as a staff member you would see yeah so um yeah i see more of i guess from the policies and processes side yeah. and you see it more from i'm here to get my degree side <laughs> right. i'm right. here to go to class right side um no it exists um and what makes it stronger here, in my opinion, is that there's roles specifically centered around mission yeah. and around Ignatian pedagogy yeah. and around the Society of Jesus. Yeah. And without embedding those roles and those those people to kind of communicate that message and yeah. repeat that priority, yeah. it could easily be lost. Yeah, where it's just like, yeah, we're Jesuit institution. Yeah. Yeah. So no, um, it's it's been, and I think the examines mm. that have happened, whether that be mission or racial, and now there's going to be, I understand, a climate examine. Yeah. All of those intentional processes of looking within and being self aware yeah. 
is also very strong and not a lot of organizations do that or do it well. Yeah. No, that is, yeah. that is totally fair. Yeah. Um, and sort of sticking with you as a person, how, how has your faith um, sort of shaped the opportunities you did take advantage of through your time? You know, because we talked a lot, a lot about a lot of what you've done. But. Mm. Yeah, so I, I think my faith influences me to trust in certain principles. Yeah. So the principle that kind of if I am uh, kind of like what I said before, kind of like um, honest and committed yeah. to work that is of service to people, yeah. whether that be in education or whether that be in the courtroom, that that honest commitment and whole commitment will produce a path that's for me. Right. Because I know that work is for me and I know that I'm I'm serving that need in a um in a true way. So that that principle which really comes from my faith has allowed me to trust a path and let the opportunities happen without me not that i don't strive or work hard but without me striving for a future that i feel that i always have to manage or control Mm. that's fair that is fair yeah um and one of the last things uh, we'll talk about um is another organization you helped found, which mm. is the uh, Group for Reflection on Action for a New Haiti. Yes. Uh, the yes, Chicago I, chapter. Yes. Now that I have to go in my archives for. Because, okay, so my involvement with that group really came um, really came out of the Hirsch, Haitian earthquake in 2010. Okay. And in 2010, I had recently graduated law school and I was starting my practice but I wanted to be involved with the Haitian community here in Chicago to support efforts for the larger Haitian diaspora yeah in Haiti and here and so um yeah that was that was my involvement there either through fundraising or planning I mean there's just so many um really committed people in great positions here, whether in higher ed or government, whether they be judges, attorneys, or just business people that are part of the Haitian community and doing work here, yeah. that's valuable, but also doing work back for Haiti. Yeah. And so I wanted to be a part of that. And I was part of that for several years. Nice. And yeah. are you then Haitian? Are you Haitian? I am Haitian. Okay. <laughs> my, my mother was born in Haiti. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Now, uh-huh. have you gone back a lot? No, I have not. Um, I've been close, but I have not been back. Yeah. Me, I, I should actually talk to the dean about <laughs> going back and, you know, because, you know, she was born there and, you know, but no, I, it's, it's a, it is a to-do, like you. something to do for sure. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, I have never been. That is fair. So, um, sort of as we wrap up the interview and I appreciate again for your time. So Absolutely. now you're here at Loyola, you're mm-hmm. leading our uh, Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, given your extensive background mm-hmm. and sort of everything, and even your own experiences uh, being a black woman, mm-hmm. um, and all the other parts of your identity, of course, um, mm-hmm. 
where do you want to take this office? Yeah. Um, and, and what are you hoping to achieve, both in the school, but also just in the broader community? Yeah, so I would really love to see, um, I think there, there's been a lot of law schools who admitted students that were from mostly white communities. Yeah. And I'm I'm not talking about like the last five years or something like that, but I'm talking about like within the last 50 years, 100 years, since law schools have been created, it's been a most predominantly white profession. And if you are a student from a black or brown community or first generation or, you know, just from a marginalized oppressed community, your experience here was pretty isolating, was pretty just, um, maybe you might connect with one or two people, which would be great, but you didn't see a lot of things around you that made you feel like um, that you were the primary thought right. of of how of how things were done there. And I really hope when I do my work that not just because of the relationship I have, but that's something around the student's experience either in class, with administration, faculty and staff, helps shift the the thought that this place isn't for me, doesn't doesn't consider me, doesn't value me, doesn't see me. And one more frustrating part about DEI work is that it's slow work. Yeah. That I may not be able to, if I asked all of the diverse students, however you define diversity, not everybody would say, oh yeah, no, I felt valued. I felt like I belonged. And that's frustrating because I, I come here every day hoping that as many students as possible can say, yes, I did felt like I was seen. I did feel like I was valued. I do feel like I was belong. Or if I didn't feel like that all the time, I did feel that sometimes. Just right. some way to respond yes to that. Yeah. And unfortunately, maybe not all students will say that um, before I begin yeah. or when I begin. But I hope that by the time I leave that significantly more no more students can say that they felt like you know they were seen heard valued that they belonged that they were um you know a valuable part of this community by some tangible aspect of what we were doing as a law school and so that's my hope yeah that 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 uh ongoing relationship with the institution between you know diverse students can change over time and you don't see alum you don't hear alum that were just like I survived that. Right. You know, I got through that. Yeah. I didn't know anybody. Nobody looked like me. But, like, no, like, not survived it. But, you know, I, I enjoyed it. I thrived. It was okay. Yeah. Not everything was good. But, you know, it, it, it was it was good for me. Right. That's, that's what I hope for. Yeah. Right. And I didn't ask you earlier, but what was your experience? So, I, I actually, I actually had a good law school experience. Yeah. Now, it depends on what aspect. So I definitely felt like the only whatever student in some of the rooms, black, woman, whatever. But 
overall, even if it wasn't always in my classroom, I did have a diverse class. Right. Um, even though they weren't always with me in, in the actual courses that I was taking, or maybe they were upperclassmen. Right. So we weren't taking the same type of courses. But, you know, 2006, 2009, this was a President Obama-heavy right. land, right. okay? So in law school, a lot of us were, not me, but a lot of um, my fellow law school colleagues were campaigning for different political campaigns or for, for President Obama's campaign. And it was like, you know, um, it literally was like, yes, we can. There was a lot of energy yeah. in law school. Yeah. And so that time was actually a really interesting time to be a law school student because, you know, you could do a lot of um, volunteer externship, yeah. internship work for a lot of interesting organizations and people that were trying to shift the politics so it was exciting and there was a lot of energy but then the recession came and the market was hard after we graduated but no it was an exciting time to be a law school student it just wasn't i could see that in the larger law school but i didn't always feel in the classroom yeah that is fair now that is your work to make (laughs) make everyone have a great law school experience yeah that is my help that is my help Excellent. Well, again, I appreciate your time. Uh, Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for agreeing to do this. So let's start out with just the basic of who you are and what's your title and what do you do? Uh, my name is Giselle Santibanez Bania, and I am the Assistant Dean for Student Services here at Loyola Law. And um, I've been in this current role for four-ish years or so. And before that, I was the Associate Director for Student Services, um, and I did that for nine years. Gotcha. And so, uh, I guess, what's the difference between the Associate Director and now being the Assistant Dean? Um, So now I'm, uh, I really am a member of the Senior Administration, so in terms of, um, you know, I'm just responsible for more things. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Now, a question I've always wanted to ask you um, is your last name, because you go by Dean Giselle, and I assume it's because people struggle with saying Santi Banya's Banya. Yes. Um, and then it's hyphenated. Is that because you are you have both your parents' last names, because you got married and you hyphenated your name? How um, can you tell us about that? So my maiden name is Santi Banya's. My father is from Spain. My mother is from Cuba. Um, and um, when I got married, my husband, his last name is Bania. Um, but I decided to keep to hyphenate and to keep the maiden name because my father is the last Santibanias. Um, and I became licensed after I, be- I got married. Um, and my uh, husband did not go through law school. So I didn't think that his name should necessarily be on my law license. Oh, I love that. That's awesome. That is awesome. So you said your father's Spanish and your mother's Cuban. Yes. I'm first gen child of immigrants. My parents came here um, in the 70s with uh, my father had a suitcase and $20. Oh, wow. And my mother um, fled Cuba during um, the revolution, um, met my father in Spain. They were in Spain. She was in Spain waiting to get a visa to come to the U.S. Mm -hmm. And so she also came here with like dollars in a suitcase oh, wow. so yeah they uh, started from nothing that that is incredible is that part of what sort of led you to to going to law school 
or did you start in college and then at some point you got the law school bug? Um, so I actually wanted to be a social worker. Okay. Um, and my parents were very opposed to be being poor and living in their basement. Um, not that social workers necessarily all do that, but they had a very preconceived notion of what that would be like. Um, so I originally was looking for a JD MSW program, and Loyola at the time was one of only 16 schools in the country that offered that kind of a dual degree. Did you do that initially or? I did that initially. Um, I was very fortunate that I had a very generous scholarship for law school. Um, I did not have a scholarship for the social work degree. So um, I realized I was going to have to pay out of pocket for the social work degree, and that made me sort of reconsider (laughs) (laughs) whether I was going to follow along. I had enough debt. I've had enough academic debt, so I didn't know if I wanted to take on some more. Oh, that is fair. That is fair. So in undergrad, what did you do in undergrad? Um, I went to Washington University in St. Louis, mm-hmm. and um, I originally started as pre-med, um, and chemistry kicked my butt, so <laughs> yeah. that lasted for one whole semester, <laughs> and then I uh, became a history major, so I'm uh-huh. a, I'm actually a double major in history and Spanish literature. Oh, that is very cool. Did you focus on any particular uh, era? American women in the 19th century. American, wow. Very cool. Did, um, it was about Katie Stanton and that kind of stuff. Okay. What made you choose? Just were you interested in that, or just some fabulous professors, and yeah. I wanted to take all their classes. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. So then you uh, get done with undergrad, you do the dual degree program, and then you decide just to do law school. So if how did wanting to be a social worker and then initially coming in a dual degree, but then focusing on law school, how did that? direct your law school path? So I think I've always wanted to help other people. You know, in college I was an RA for two years and it sounds kind of cheesy, but it was one of those, like, I've I've always been drawn to like helping other people and putting myself out there to help other folks. Um, So it was sort of the same thing when I was in law school and what I was interested in. Um, And I ended up doing, you know, litigation. that's what I focused on when I was practicing law, but it was, I was at the attorney general's office and there's just this, this gravitas for standing up in court and being like, I'm here on behalf of the people of the state of Illinois. <laughs> yeah. Like there's just like this umph to it. That's right. kind of exciting. You're right. And how long did you practice? I practiced for about 10 years. Okay. And for, for the listeners, you, um, you came to Loyola Law School, right? Yes. And graduated from Loyola. So you pre- litigated for 10 years, uh, Was that all with the Attorney General's office? No, I was um, in private practice at a couple of firms. Um, When I was just starting out, um, I ended up sort of going into like insurance defense work and I kind of developed a specialty with med mal defense work just between one thing and another. Right. Um, It just, that's just kind of the cases I was handed and sort of the path I went down. So when I ended up finally at the Attorney General's office, I was in the torts division and I was doing med mal work. Okay, interesting. Yeah, so then you just sort of went to the other side, essentially, it, going to the prosecutor's office. Um, well, I or was attorney general's office sorry. at the at the AG's office. You're both prosecution and defense. Oh. So it's not like the state's attorney and the public defender's office. I see. AGs represent all sorts of constituents. That is fair. And as you progressed through your legal training, was there something? Um, 
that surprised you as you got out into the real world from from law school? I think things have changed. I could be wrong. Um, I was very surprised at um, when I being a female litigator at how it was actually sometimes more difficult to be a woman in the courtroom than it was to be Latina. Really? Yeah. And I, I found that really, really, really surprising. There's a lot of, at the time, um, and again, I mean, it's been almost 15 years, yeah. so I, w- I would hope that things have, have evolved or changed a little bit. Right. A lot of judges who call you sweetheart, and oh, wow. that was that was really shocking yeah. to me. Yeah. Wow. I, I couldn't, and of course, I'm a, a man, so there's no, you know, it's not common for anyone to call me sweetheart. Yeah, for a judge to call you sweetheart or something like that. Um, and there were a lot of opposing counsels who assumed I was the paralegal uh, or, would, you know. Yeah. So, you know, it's one of those, like, you can get really mad about it or you can flip it. So I, I like to think that I made an entire career out of people underestimating me because okay. I would go into court and they would just assume I was the secretary or the You're paralegal right. or I was just some you know, little girl straight out of law school, <laughs> and uh, then I would win. Yeah. So. <laughs> Fair, enough. Fair enough. And how does being a first-generation, both law student, but also first-generation American and uh, just a child of immigrants, how does that, or how did that sort of affect your view of the law and your relationship with it? You know, it's it's really interesting. Um, English is not my first language. Okay. Um, so I am fully bilingual, and so, um, you know, it is, it is one of those things that does color everything I do and everything I see, yeah. and it always kind of surprises me. Surprises me, the assumptions that people make mm-hmm. about one another. Yeah. Um, you know, I I think a lot of folks would hear that I'm part Cuban or part Spanish and just assume that means I come from money. And that is absolutely categorically false um, because both sides of my families struggled a lot in the countries that they were in and they were poor. Like my my father went to, um, the only reason he got an education at all is because it was donated Mm. by the church at the time yeah. in Spain, in Franco Spain, which a lot of people don't know about Franco Spain, but yeah. it was not an easy place to grow up. Right. So, you know, I don't know. I, I, I that always kind of, I think that kind of colors me. I, mm-hmm. the, the bias and assumptions that people yeah. make about other folks. Yeah, that is that is fair. And when advocating for clients, um, how do, I guess how does that then change the way you approach it for other people and your? Um, I think it's really hard not to make assumptions. So I tried to approach, when I was practicing law, approach my clients with, you know, there's always going to be some bias and there's always going to be some assumptions that you make, but try to like clear that as much as possible um, and approaching everybody as as a human first. Um, And I think I I try to do the same thing with students. I try to approach everyone, you know, everybody has challenges, everybody has really interesting, fascinating backgrounds. And honestly, that's one of the things I love most about my job here is I love, I love getting to know you. I love getting to know (laughs) students and and hearing your stories and what brought you to Loyola, what brought you to this 
yeah. and what you want to do. Like my one of my favorite questions to ask is, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" Like right. really, you know, everybody's yeah. still discovering what they want to do, and yeah. I find that really interesting. Yeah, no, that it certainly is. And speaking of Loyola specifically, of course, having uh, the Jesuit Catholic background that it does, was that a factor in you coming here as a student and then later working for the institution? Is faith important to you, and was that important when you were looking for law schools or schools in general? Um, you know, I didn't realize at the time how big the Jesuit mission was and uh-huh. how important that is. I think it is definitely like, I think you're here and you start drinking the Kool-Aid. Uh, um, <laughs> oh, yeah. And I, I think it's definitely become a big part of, of who I am. Yeah. But I grew up Catholic yeah. and I went to Catholic school growing up. Uh-huh. But that's not why I chose Loyola. Yeah, I chose right. Loyola because they gave me the most money. <laughs> All about it. <laughs> and also it was yeah. Chicago. Yeah. Like it was, you know, I wanted to stay in the Midwest. Yeah. You know, I went to college in St. Louis and I realized I really liked the Midwest. Yeah. And I kind of was looking to stay sort of in the Midwest. Oh, that is fair. So where did you grow up if not St. Louis? So I uh, was born born in New York that's where my parents landed first when they when they came over um, from Europe and um, uh, so I, I grew up there until high school and then my my father had a, a very serious work injury and he couldn't do the work he was doing before he was a waiter yeah. um, and he really injured his back very badly uh, yeah. so he was my parents were given a business opportunity through my godfather yeah. in, in Miami okay. so my parents uprooted and we moved to Miami so I did high school in Miami oh wow how was that uh, you know as somebody who grew up in the Midwest growing up in Kansas you, you view I would view New York and Miami as very similar different culturally but oh, they're just, completely different. Right. But, you know, <laughs> as a little small small town guy, I would be like, oh, those are big cities where it's hustling and bustling. But, like, what was the, how was that cultural difference for you, especially as a, an impressionable teen? Um, it was really, really, really different. Yeah. Um, Miami's great. Um, my parents are there. My sister's there. Um, I enjoy visiting. I would, it's not a place I would really want to live. Yeah. Um, the biggest shock honestly was you know in new york and like in chicago yeah. there is really great public transportation people walk everywhere right. um and miami if you don't get a, have a car you can't get around <laughs> to anything <laughs> yeah. so um yeah. it's it was just very much that that was like a big big culture shock for oh, me that's right. and um thankfully i speak spanish but many folks down there speak spanish primarily yeah. so um that was that was interesting. Yeah, that's fair. Um, and being that it is a large, particularly, I imagine there's a huge Cuban diaspora yes. there. Was it different than New York? Were you in a, a largely Latino Latina neighborhood and area? Or um, I was one of three Latinos in my grade school, um, oh. so I grew up in a primarily Irish Italian neighborhood. Gotcha. Yeah. It's so very similar to Chicago, just in general. <laughs> yes, yeah. It was a, it was, it was a great neighborhood. It was a great oh, yeah. place to grow up, but it was, it was definitely um, not as diverse as I think it is now. Yeah. Okay. At least where I grew up, I grew up in in, in Queens. Yeah. Fair. Okay, and then, uh, so shifting a bit back, so you finish law school, you go to the state AG, or you work and, mm-hmm. and uh, practice, and then go to the state AG's office. So what made you decide to 
foray into back into the law school and it was an accident yeah <laughs> it was not i was not i was very happy at the ag's office i wasn't looking to leave practice yeah. um what actually happened was at the time um loyola's lalsa had decided to start a mock trial team gotcha and um they reached out to a few alums and I was one of them and asked them to coach. Yeah. So I was asked to come coach. Yeah. Um, and so I was in the building and um, I had reached out to my predecessor. Her name was Dean Jean Gaspardo. She was the Dean of Students when I was in law school. Mm-hmm. And I'd reached out to her and said, hey, I'm, in, I'm around, let's yeah. go grab a cup of coffee. Right. Um, and so she actually, I'd sent her an email and she actually called me immediately and said, I have a job position that I want you to apply for. Right. Um, so I went through the entire process of applying for it. Yeah. Um, and like I said, I don't, I'd always really enjoyed working with students, which is why I started coaching that mock trial team. Yeah. Um, so I was like, this might be interesting. So let's, let's see what happens. And that's how I got the job originally. Yeah. That is funny how things just sort of happen. Yeah. Um, so what was the biggest difference between practicing law and now sort of working with students who are exploring for the first time the legal profession? That's that's an interesting question. Um, you know, I, I think when you're practicing, even if you know your clients pretty well, um, there's always a little bit of that separation yeah. um, professionally. You're right. And I think working with students, I think that sort of disappears because I've been in your shoes um, a long time ago. But, and things have definitely evolved and changed. You know, when I was in law school, like nobody had laptops and now everybody has laptops. (laughs) And when I was in law school, everybody hand wrote their exams. And now if you said to a student, you have to hand write your exam, there would be like tears. (laughs) Um, But you know, that's because education has changed. Education has evolved and And um, I do, one of the things I do think is great about working with students is I feel like you guys keep me kind of young. So I I appreciate that very much. (laughs) That is is fair. Have you ever um, thought about wanting to, or have you been in the classroom in terms of teaching teaching a class? Um, Just with coaching the mock trial team, because I still do, I don't do so much now the primary coaching for the civil law mock trial team, yeah. but I do still help out yeah. with it. Um, there were many years that I did a lot of that teaching yeah. um, for a long time, yeah. but I uh, thankfully have an amazing group of former team members who come back to coach. Yeah. Um, and so now I like to sit back and sort of let them do their magic. Yeah, no, that is fair. And it has. Um, now that you aren't practicing, but you're seeing students practice in both, I would imagine the way that students approach the law now is even different than when you were in law school or even when you started at, in administration. Seeing sort of it at this broader um, view, has your view of the law or your approach to the law changed at all? You know, um, I think in some ways, especially with all of the turmoil that we've had politically the last couple of years, um, I think the law is more important than ever and respecting the rule of law and democracy and the foundations of what our profession is based on um, have more value than ever before. But that's, that's 
kind of like a long view because yeah. there's some scary things happening. <laughs> right. Yeah. No doubt. No doubt. And I, being that you are in a position to um, not just administer, you know, policies from the school, but in a position where you do counsel students both academically, but I imagine many students come to you just to talk and just event and, and just, you know, everything else uh, because you are the extraordinary of everything. Um, <laughs> how, how do you talk students through sort of both the, of what's going on? Because I would imagine there's a lot of anxiety around that. I think, honestly, just listening yeah. and supporting through listening is, is really important because I everybody's voices are so important and just making sure that that students feel heard I mean it it's it's just really important that to validate those feelings it's it's okay to have big feelings about what's going on in the world it's kind of a scary time um but really being just able to listen I don't have the solutions I don't have the answers um I I think it's just important to just to listen and to hear and that's how I learn about things too you know so what gets you up in the morning about your job like what's the one thing that like because you do a lot but there's pieces of the job that you really enjoy more than certainly others I'm sure honestly it's just the daily student interaction just really um like I said you know I, I find students really fascinating. Like yeah. you're all just really interesting people, and um, I really enjoy getting to know everybody. Um, and you know, it, it sounds sort of silly, but I really do try to make an effort to learn everybody's names, um, and that can be hard sometimes. Sure. With you know, especially with you know some classes being really large, right. um, but I hand make everybody's orientation name tags which sounds really silly but I it's that process of starting to learn the names and then to like have that full circle moment where I get to read the names at graduation as folks are crossing the stage and they're dressed in their hoods and I love that I love that so it it really is about the people it's it's about the students yeah that is fair and in terms of uh, starting to wrap up, because I know you're busy, there's two questions I'll end on. So the first one, what's your legacy you want to leave here at Loyola? You know, I think increasing um, opportunities for students, um, especially when it comes to the areas of wellness. I think that there's a lot that we can do better. Um, and increasing those resources and opportunities for students um, and continuing, you know, we make a, I make an effort, like I said, to try to get to know students um, one-on-one. Um, and I don't want it to be just getting to know students in an emergency situation when something's going wrong. Right. I want to, you know, you know, that's important too. And that, right. that will always be a thing. Um, but, you know, also getting to know the good stuff that's right. going on in people's lives. Right. So I really think just sort of the personal touch is, is the legacy, yeah. but also increasing resources and wellness and opportunities for students. And then the final question that I've asked everyone is, what's one thing that people should know about you as they try to get to know you either as a dean or just generally as a person? Um, what's that one thing people should know about you? Um, I am very introverted. <laughs> I'm extremely introverted. Um, and I'm very much like a sci-fi 
geek nerd and my my uh, my guilty pleasure is terrible movies yeah. like the Twilight movies. <laughs> um, Excellent. So just I'm just a person. Yeah. I'm just I'm a mom. I've got two kids. I've got a dog. I've got a husband, and I'm just I'm just like everybody else. Yeah. You're not the scary deans. No, the I'm not. I'm not scary, honestly. <laughs> I'm really not. Just, yeah. I'm an I'm an absolute awkward goofball. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I thank you for your time because I get I know you're you're busy and I'm getting out of your hair. Oh, no worries. Thank you. One final note about these episodes, both part one and part two. I just want to give a heartfelt thanks to each and every dean that took part in these interviews. It was an absolute pleasure to get to sit with you and learn more about you and your position and really what the school means to you. Um, I learned a lot. It was very insightful, uh, and I would love to do it again. And frankly, I would want to do an episode with each of them and do a full, extensive interview with them all. But unfortunately, we don't have that much time. Um, But I hope you all enjoyed, as much as I did, interviewing every single one of the deans I got to speak with. Thank you. That's all from us here at The Povicate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, please email us at thepovicate at gmail.com. Visit our website, thepovicate.com, for more information on this episode and our guests. The Povicate is produced by WLUW, the student-run independent radio station broadcasting from the School of Communications at Loyola University, Chicago. Our editors-in-chief are Christy Paredes and Marissa Palowitz. Our associate editors are Neko Ugu, Marcus McNeil, Andy Vandenbush, and Casey Callahan. Special thanks to Professor John Dane and Dean Stephen Russian for providing the resources and support to make this show possible. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Povicate.